for joining me on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Bella. On this episode, I'm going to deal with an objection that comes in from the textual realm, from textual criticism against the Bible, from atheists and skeptics who seem to think that arguments hundreds, even thousands of years too late are going to be convincing to us. Um, so uh, with that said, if you appreciate the content of this episode, please head on over to the freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Click on the Become a Sponsor link. Um, any financial donations really help go a long way to the propagation, I guess you could call it, uh, and financial support uh, of this ministry. If you can't support us financially, either there or on Patreon, why don't you head on over to iTunes uh, and give us a review and a rating. Uh, the higher the rating, five stars would be great. Um, but the, the higher the rating, the higher the review, the higher I show up in search results. Um, also, coming up soon, I'm going to start having some content put out by some other free thinkers, uh, some other people out there who are going to submit some episodes, uh, maybe who don't want to have their own blog and their own podcast, but still have some great content to share, um, help kind of fill in some of the gaps, get you all some great content a little bit more on the regular. So, uh, if you are looking forward to that, or if you're a listener and you think that might be you and you think you can record some really awesome uh, academic level content, I would appreciate hearing from you as well. So with that, let's jump right into this episode where we deal with the pericope adulterae in the Gospel of John. Enjoy the show. <laughs> I was recently in a discussion with a brother who asked if I would preach on the famous story of the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel, also known as the Pericope Adulterae, to which I answered that I would not, because it's my conviction that it was not part of the original inspired text of John. For some, this may sound strange or radical. In fact, this is thrown out by many atheists like it's some major argument against biblical inspiration and reliability. Don't you know that the story of the adulterous woman wasn't part of the original text? <gasps> Your Bible's corrupted. Throw it all away. Don't do that. So for some Christians, this may sound like some liberal scheme to undermine and tear apart the scriptures. The problem is that for anyone familiar with textual criticism, uh, they know that this passage is highly questionable. And as I'll show you, the church has known this for about 1,700 years. In fact, they knew it for certain for the first 300 years before that. This is nothing new. Not only that, but most of us who reject the canonicity of the pericope actually think this purifies the inspired text. 
We're like sailors who are scraping off apocryphal barnacles that have built up on the manuscript tradition over time. Some Christians will object that the passage should be considered canon because it's spiritually helpful and edifying for the church and that it doesn't contradict other biblical doctrine and that it's been there for a long, long time. So let me start off by saying that edification and theological fidelity are not de facto reasons to include something in the canon. Why would we not include then the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas into the canon? Why not the uh, the Quae Vadis hagiographic, uh, hagiographic telling of the martyrdom of Peter at some place in the book of Acts? In the inspiration of the Gospels, the act of inspiration was the movement of the Spirit on the original biblical author. God breathed as they were carried along by the Spirit during their composition. Their original autograph is the inspired text, so why would we then allow later church tradition to insert apocryphal material into the closed text? Here, I'm not going to address the issue of redaction of the Old Testament. Someone can ask that in a question, and I'll do a free bite on that maybe later. In addition to this, nearly all New Testament scholars and textual critics of every persuasion, whether conservative or critical, agree that the pericope is a later interpolation. That is, it wasn't part of John and what he originally wrote, and it was added in later. There are relatively few, very few holdouts who consider the story authentic to the original text of John's gospel. In fact, while many of us know that most modern translations include the passage within um, thick brackets as not being included in the earliest ma uh, manuscript tradition, What's not mentioned is that this decision to include the story but to bracket it was really done as a concession to the public church at large who may ignorantly flip out if the text was suddenly missing from the next edition of the Bible. The, the real count at that editorial committee of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, that's the UBS, was 100% unanimous that the text was inauthentic to John's gospel. Conservative evangelical scholars and every other New Testament scholar on the editorial committee of the UBS all agree it is an original. But why did they think that? Well, let's look at its textual pedigree and find out. The first time we start seeing the passage show up in the manuscript tradition at all is sometime about the middle to the late 4th century. About the same time we're first seeing any of the early church fathers comment on it. Without going into all the various manuscripts that it's found in, there are about a dozen major manuscripts from the 4th century to the 12th century, a dozen that time period, that include it, including ones like Codex Calpertinus, the Latin Vulgate, the Ethiopic, and the Jerusalem Syriac Lectionary, many of which themselves note that the passage is questionable or doubtful. It's also found in about 300 cursive copies during this time, though even in those, some of the scribes made special marginal notes about their doubts concerning the authenticity of that portion of the text. It's mentioned by Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, as well as some others in the 4th and 5th century. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? Some major codices, hundreds of cursives, a lectionary, and some pretty heavy-hitting church fathers make mention of it. It's good evidence for its inclusion, right? Well, 
If that was all the evidence we had to discuss, then maybe. But there are some major problems. Even as early as Augustine, who was one of the first major commenters on it, we see that from the beginning of its inclusion, there are major objections to it. Augustine mentions that the passage is not universally read or accepted as authentic, which is an understatement, which is uh, massively an understatement, by the way, about it being a late edition. So for Augustine, who thought that the text was actually authentic, he tried to explain its apparent emergent from uh, nowhere in, during his lifetime by saying that what happened was some low-faith churchmen, or even enemies of the faith, who were worried that the text may encourage their wives that adultery, adultery was easily forgivable and that Jesus' statement to go and sin no more would be seen as permission to sin and then be forgiven, that they all got together, they worked to suppress this portion of the text, and they changed the textual tradition for several hundred to the you know, first 300 years. I love Augustine, Augustine, whatever you want to say. But this isn't his best work, and problematic as an explanation for a number of reasons would be an understatement. The first problem for Augustine's explanation, sorry, I say Augustine, I know some people are going to be like, it's Augustine. Uh, the first problem for Augustine's explanation here is simply that there's no evidence for it. It's rather conspiratorial with no backing for it. It also would not explain why those same men wouldn't remove the story of the woman at the well. Apparently, an adulterous woman going from husband to husband to husband to husband to husband to husband to live in boyfriend wasn't problematic. Why would they be any less threatened by that text in John 4 than by the text where Jesus offers uh, uh, to, to uh, forgive the woman caught in adultery? The woman at the well doesn't show any signs of repentance before he talks to her and offers her living water. It makes no sense why they would suppress one story, but not the other. The second problem is that this doesn't explain why the pericope is absent in all areas of the church, in the East and in the West. Like, if the theory were true, we might expect it to vanish in a certain region or a family of manuscripts. But does Augustine think that they were so effective that they convinced the entire church on three continents to remove it from every manuscript family, have every church pretend that it never existed, destroy any mention of it? I mean, it's just, it's just too far-fetched. just strains at credulity. It also does explain why the text is supposedly recovered, but it shows up in numerous places. Of those dozen manuscripts, four of them place the story in the middle of the book of Luke, one of them toward the end of John's gospel, and one earlier in chapter 7 after verse 36. In 10 of the cursives, it also has been placed at the end of the gospel. One could argue that when the narrative was first being added into the canon, it was a text without a home and it floated from place to place. Augustine's supposition that it was suppressed would not explain its mobility throughout John and Luke. In addition, <clears throat> we have to say that the silence concerning this text prior to the mid-fourth century is absolutely deafening. It's omitted from every manuscript of both John and Luke, 
prior to the 4th century, including major ones like P66 and P75. It's omitted in the more than 50 cursives from that time period, and there's not a single comment about the story in the more than 30 extant lectionaries that we have on John's Gospel, many of which were verse-by-verse expositions that, if the passage were there, they just inexplicably all agreed to skip. At this point, we should also mention again that many of the manuscripts mentioned above, which do include it, again, mark it as doubtful in their marginal notes. So even when it's added, people question it. In fact, those that move it to the end of John are probably just attesting to the doubtful nature of the pericope, but instead of removing it from the text altogether, they just put it at the end, almost like making an appendix to the gospel. Furthermore, in addition to the Greek manuscripts, it exists in no family of translations prior to the 4th century. It's not in the Old Latin, the Peshito, the Herculean Syriac, the Mephetic, the Thebatic, the Gothic, the Sahidic, the Sub-Akmimic, or the, the Boharic, the, or the Armenian. That's three continents, both Eastern and Western Church, totally silent. And while it does appear to work its way into the Peshito Syriac, it only does so well after the 4th century. This same trend happens in the Armenian manuscripts, and strangely enough, the additions that do begin to include it include versions of the story that are very unlike the Greek counterparts, almost like it was the same historical nugget, but different textual tradition. This too is evidence of a late edition, since the Armenian texts are clearly translations of the Greek, except on this story where they seem to be telling the story from a different tradition or text that the manuscripts of John that they have in Greek that they've been using. This means that the story as being part of John's gospel was completely unknown to the Eastern and Western churches. Now, there does appear to be one mention of the story in the Eastern church, but let's put a pin in that for now, and I'm going to return to it at the end of the episode, and you'll see why. Okay, So we have absolute silence all over in the manuscripts. But we also have Syriac and Armenian lectionaries, which, like their Greek and Latin counterparts, never mention the passage, despite many of them going verse by verse through the gospel. Even even after Augustine, we have references to the passage, but not, not a single commentary on John exegetes or explicates this passage until Eumithius, Zygabinus in the 12th century. And even he admits that all accurate copies of the gospel do not contain it. Again, we have no comment on this passage from the likes of Tertullian, Cyprian, Chrysostom, or most notably Oregon, who has quite an extended commentary on this section in which this pericope is where it's presently found, and yet he makes absolutely no mention of it not even to it being disputed. He simply comments on every verse from 740 to 752, then skips to 812, and comments on the verses following, with no mention of anything in between. I shouldn't even say skips, because that assumes that something was actually there. For him, those two verses, 752 and 812, were just back-to-back. Now, we also have an important work by Nonus of Panopolis, 
in the 4th century who completes a paraphrase of the book of John and makes no mention of the story of the adulterous woman. In addition, there are grammatical and narratival reasons to find the passage problematic if it were original. Without delving into the details, there is a marked stylistic and voice change at verse 53 when the passage begins. It uses grammatical constructions, terms, and a style that are found nowhere else in John. And then at 8.13, it reverts back to a Johannine style and voice. It's almost as if a completely different author takes over for a dozen or so verses to tell us the story. And narratively, the pericope actually breaks up the story and the theme being told by John at that point. Let me start by giving you a little historical background of what's actually happening in John in chapter 7. Okay, <clears throat> during Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a great ceremony that the Jews called the Illumination of the Temple, which involved, among other things, the lighting of four golden oil menorahs in the court of the women. And these weren't your grandma's menorahs. Right, these menorahs were huge. They're about 75 feet high, each of them. And they were lit in the temple at night as the signification of the pillar of fire that had guided the Israelites in the desert under Moses. These menorahs were kept burning all night and illuminated the entire city. The religious leaders would have danced and sang psalms of praise to Yahweh and his faithfulness to Israel. This festival was one giant reminder that God had promised to send another light, the light, to a sin-darkened world. It was a festival full of messianic expectation. They, there were, they were remembering that God promised to send the Messiah as the light into the darkness, to end oppression, poverty, captivity, violence, and to set all things right. And no, this isn't a Christian reconstruction. We have Jews talking about the festival this way. And it was this feast that was being celebrated during chapter 7 and chapter 8 of John's Gospel. At the end of chapter 7, right before where the pericope is inserted, Jesus had performed some miracles, and the Pharisees were debating something. Basically, they're asking, who is this guy? They start discussing if he could be the Messiah, the light that was promised to come. They debate if Christ would come from Bethlehem and from the line of David and so forth. And when the Pharisees asked the temple officers why they didn't arrest Jesus, the officers said that no one had ever spoken like Jesus had spoken. Now, if we remove the pericope, what we find is that chapter 7 would end with the Pharisees asking Nicodemus from earlier in chapter 3 to search the scriptures to see that no prophet arises from Galilee. We then go to 8.13, where Jesus suddenly, on the same topic, responds by saying, I am the light of the world, and the Pharisees going back into disputing the testimony about who Jesus was. Imagine you're in ancient Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Visualize seeing these massive menorahs giving a tremendous amount of light. Now imagine the impact of the words of Jesus in the temple courtyard under those very menorahs, when he announced, I am the light of the world. Notice the thematic continuation that would flow from 7.52 to 8.13 if the pericope was not there, and that discussion of the identity of Jesus, if he was the true prophet, the Christ, 
the light that they were celebrating was promised to come with Jesus affirming that he was indeed the light of the world, the promised Christ. There's a seamless narrative that happens between 752 and 8.12 that the story of the adulterous woman abruptly disrupts. And John does not typically break up his own point that way. In fact, he, go, he gives us some of the longest uninterrupted narratives. Especially, he doesn't break it up, especially not at the moment he's setting up the punchline. The Pharisees are asking who Jesus is. Is he a prophet, a descendant of David, the Messiah, the lights that's to come? And Jesus about to answer, yes, I'm the light of the world. And you have this interruption of the story of the adulterous woman. But with the, so with the story there, there's just this pointless break in the narration. There's a delay to the punchline. It, it mutes it. It, it declaws it. And, and it does it in a way that's very non-Johannine. So what we have is absolute science, silence of the passage in all manuscripts, all the curses, all the minuscules, all the lectionaries, all the commentaries, no references to it in letters, Nothing. No mention of it until the 4th century on. And even then, there's only a slow inclusion of the passage, often still with skepticism and notation of it being doubtful. And that didn't end, right? It's not that it finally won over everyone, and now the liberals are trying to take it back. There's always been a tradition of people who doubted it. Even during the time of the Reformation, the, the, the passage was doubted by people like Erasmus, Calvin, Beza, and so many others. And when it's included in the manuscripts, it moves around the Gospels. Remember, it jumps into Luke. And in all cases, it seems to break the narrative flow where it's placed. So I would argue that we should not include this pericope, nor read it as inspired scripture, any more than we Protestants would the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Apocrypha, or any other edifying but ultimately uninspired text. But, there is a further question that can be asked. Is the story fiction? Is it false? If we remove it from the scriptures, do we just need to throw it in the trash bin? I don't think so. Actually, not at all. So where did the story come from? Okay, I'm going to argue that I think the story is actually historical. I think it is <clears throat> a non-canonical uh, oral tradition that is faithful to the actual life of Jesus. It's just not part of the inspired text. Okay, why do I say that? Well, what happens, what appears to have happened, is that the early church father Papias, a disciple of John, seems to be the originator of the story. Eusebius writes about a story that was transmitted, not in John's gospel, but by Papias, about a woman who was accused before the Lord of adultery. Eusebius wrote, quote, Papias also put forth another history concerning a woman accused of many sins before the Lord, and this history is contained in the gospel according to the Hebrews. End quote. Now, Papias mentions uh, mentions of the gospel according to the Hebrews is taken as many to be an earlier proto-gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, but in Hebrew. Some, like uh, Peter Williams, actually think that the gospel to the Hebrews is what scholars now call Q, and as such, strangely, Q, which underlays the theory of Mark and priority, and a kind of Matthean priority, which was the near-universal view of the early church, 
are both true. This view would be that Matthew did write first, but of our extant canonical Gospels, Mark came first. Matthew's cliff notes, which were the Gospel to the Hebrews, was a source, but not a canonical work. So, both are true, Mark and Priority, and the entire uni universal church tradition that Matthew wrote first. <coughs> now, that's an interesting theory, to say the least. There are issues with it, but it's interesting. Okay, however, what it does do is that it tells us information about the genesis of the pericope adultery. Yet, unfortunately for us, none of Papias's writings have survived us today. And so we really have to reconstruct what he says from mentions and citations of him by Eusebius, mostly, a couple others, but mostly by Eusebius. So, if Eusebius is to be trusted on his presentation of the writings of Papias, which most scholars following the work of Richard Bauckham and others accept, then we have a probable origin for the story of the adulterous woman, and it appears that Papias would have gotten it from John himself, since he was one of John's disciples. This has led many scholars, and I lean toward accepting this view, that Papias was giving reliable, extra-biblical history about the life of Jesus. So for many, the story of the woman bought be, uh, brought before Jesus, accused of adultery and pardoned, is a, a historical tradition from the real life of Jesus, even if it's not part of the inspired text of John. It's not canonical or inspired scripture, so we shouldn't preach on it from Sunday morning and hold Bible studies about it, but it is a glimpse into what Jesus did in his ministry during his life on earth. But is this all speculation? Do I have any evidence for any of this? Well, do you remember I said that there was one mention in the Eastern Church of the story before the 4th century? This is where that becomes relevant when we consider that Papias was an Eastern Church father. In a Syrian work known as the Didascala Apostolorum, there is a reference to the story of the woman caught in adultery. What's interesting to note is that the story is mentioned apparently as a piece of history, not as a reference in connection to John's gospel. This gives credibility to the thesis that what we have in the story of the adulterous woman is a piece of reliable oral history, but not an inspired gospel narrative. In his textbook on textual criticism, even back in 1894, and we have even better manuscript evidence now that was not original when he wrote back then, F.H.A. Shrivener writes, quote, If this section be indeed the composition of St. John, it has been transmitted to us under circumstances widely different from those connected with any other genuine passage of Scripture, whatever. End quote. And so back to the original question. No, I would not preach on John 753 to 812 because I'm convicted that it simply is not part of John's original gospel and the preacher's job is to preach God in, God's inspired scripture to the church. Now, it can tell us something edifying and illuminating and give us great information, I think, about the historical Jesus and his real ministry and give us some comfort concerning Jesus' ministry to sinners like you and I. But we should not place it on the level of the inspired text of John. And don't let the atheist tell you that this is some big problem for Christianity. They're going to bring up this text and other passages in the, in, in the New Testament that we just know weren't part of the original gospel, and that's okay. 
Most Christians have known this, and we use textual criticism for this all the time. It's not something that should be a problem for your faith. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or those condemnations, please feel free to email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come on and join the Free Thinker group page on Facebook. Join us next time as we go over some content specifically around the canonicity of Jude first enough. We'll get there. Good night and God bless.